Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Prof- Professor Selena Bartlett, and I'm joined today by Professor Randolph Nessie. We're very fortunate that he has decided to um, lend his time to us for this interview. He is a research professor of life sciences at Arizona State University, where he became the founding director of the Center for Evolution Medicine in 2014. Previously, he was a professor of psychiatry and psychology at the University of Michigan, where he led the evolution and human adaptation program and helped to establish one of the first anxiety disorders clinics. His research on the neuroendocrinology of anxiety evolved into studies on why aging exists. This led to a collaboration with the evolutionary biologist George Williams on why we get sick, the new science of Darwinian medicine. This book initiated much new work in the field of evolutionary medicine, which is the topic of our discussion today. It's really exciting work. His research is on how selection shapes mechanisms that regulate our defenses to pain, fear, anxiety, and mood, and how social selection has shaped human capacities for morality, which is a really interesting topic, I think. His larger mission is to establish evolutionary biology as a basic science for medicine, which he has in, he's been doing for the last six years. Dr. Nessie is the founding president of the International Society for Evolution, Medicine and Public Health and a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, a fellow of the Association for Psychological Sciences and elected fellow of the AAAS. Today, we're going to discuss also his new book, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. And this um, is insights from the founder of evolutionary psychiatry. How lucky are we to have him today to discuss this? Basically, he's asking evolutionary questions about why mental disorders exist and can make psychiatry more effective. And that's what we really want to get down to today. So welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for the invitation. Great to be with you. So would you like to tell the audience a little bit about how you came into this and why you became a psychiatrist in the first place? Gosh, I told myself it was because I wanted to help people. And that was true because it was really satisfying work when I was seeing patients every day. It was just very satisfying. Um, But the other reason, which you don't talk about very much when you're in practice actively, is the number of people in my family who have had mental disorders and trying to figure out what's going on and and why those disorders are there. Um, By the time I finished medical school and started my psychiatry residency, um, I was thrilled to be able to be learning neuroscience and psychodynamics and learning theory and, and pharmacology and you, you name it. It was a wonderful broad education I got. But a few years into my faculty position, I found myself very frustrated. My friends were either becoming psychoanalysts or behavior therapists or doctors who prescribed drugs or cognitive behavioral therapists. And, and I kept wanting to find some way of pulling it all together, some framework that would allow me to to use all of the science that was there. Plus, I was kind of frustrated because my own research on neuroendocrine responses showed that the body didn't necessarily respond consistently to something like intense fear. Everybody was different. And so I went wandering over to the Museum of Natural History, where I was wonderfully welcomed by a group of biologists who explained to me that I really was only using half of biology. Um, I was using the half of biology that studies how things work And I never even thought it was okay to ask, why are things the way they are? Why do emotions exist, you know? Um, 
So back in 1984, I wrote an article about how evolution might help to provide a better foundation for psychiatry. Um, and shortly thereafter, I realized that nobody was going to pay any attention uh, to evolutionary psychiatry unless it was really grounded in medicine. Plus, um, I really had to tackle the question about why diseases exist in general uh, before I could make much progress on trying to understand why mental disorders are so common. That led to the collaboration with George Williams and he wrote an article and a book. And turns out a lot of people are very interested now in asking this whole new set of questions about why isn't the body better? Why didn't natural selection make our minds much more robust and less vulnerable? And it's been a wonderful preoccupation. It's coming along very well. So in this aha moment, did you find that you were having an aha moment when you made that walk across? And as someone that's actually on the front line at that point in your life, can you explain that time? Because I think this is a really important um, conversation because there's a lot of people out there that have this too, but they've been kind of told that if they have it or their family have it, then they're stuck with it for the rest of their life. So I'm, I'm just curious to know what, as a psychiatrist at that point, how you felt and what you all of a sudden wanted to write that book about. So, so I, I wish it was an aha moment, but actually it was mostly a moment of deep, deep embarrassment uh, because I started explaining to these biologists my theory about aging that I'd come up with as an undergraduate. I told them that I thought maybe aging existed because it's good for the species. Because if the species turns over regularly because everybody gets old and some people die every year, the species can evolve faster. That's kind of a nice, interesting idea, don't you think? Yes, I do. But it's completely wrong. It's so wrong uh, that everybody in the room kind of looked at each other as if I'd made a bad noise or sound or something. And, and a few, few of them started laughing. And, and one of them said very kindly, you don't know anything about biology, do you? And it was true. I mean, here I'd studied all through medical school, you know, done good research, and I had never, ever learned how natural selection actually worked. In fact, I thought that just providing an explanation of things based on mechanisms was enough. And you're a neuroscientist, so this must be very relevant for you. I mean, many neuroscientists still imagine that if we can just give a description of how things work and what's wrong in the brains of people whose minds are not working well, that's all we need to do, but that's not true. Uh, what we need to do is understand why didn't natural selection make our bodies and minds more robust? Why do we have an appendix? Why do we have wisdom teeth? Why do we have back pain? Why do we have hemorrhoids? Why do we, and, what, and, and why do we have depression and anxiety and obsessions and all the rest? It's a whole new class of questions. And so what shifted in your mind from your original thinking about aging and, and to why we have these things, the hangovers, well, aren't they? <laughs> my, my new biologist friends sent me to the library and they said, you haven't read George Williams, 1957. And George Williams, 1957 paper was a seminal paper for evolutionary biology. Uh, he pointed out that, you know, traits, genes that cause aging could nonetheless be selected for if they gave benefits in youth when selection is stronger. And I thought, oh my gosh, if aging has an evolutionary explanation, what about all of these disorders I'm dealing with? What about schizophrenia? And after I began working with him, we began together making the most common, most serious mistake in evolutionary medicine. And that is trying to propose how diseases are useful. 
we, we seriously asked each other, so how does breast cancer give a benefit? How does schizophrenia give a benefit? And then one day we turned to each other and we said, that doesn't make any sense. These things don't give any benefits. We're trying to explain the wrong thing. Let's shift. Instead of trying to explain diseases, let's explain traits that make us vulnerable to diseases. That made all the difference. That, that was the key insight that led to the group of this, the growth of this particular um, aspect of evolutionary medicine. It's a whole new world of new questions. Do you want to explain, expand more on what those new questions have done for you and your work and, and found that, you know, the foundation of the curriculum developing in your new book as well? You know, the, the next thing that we did was try to figure out, so um, why aren't bodies better? I was taught in medical school that bodies aren't better because mutations happen. And now I'm calling that tacit creationism. And by that, I mean, talking about the body and viewing the body as if it's a machine designed by somebody. Um, but if you start thinking about how the body actually came to be, it's a very different beast. You know, the complexities of the brain in particular, um, the wiring of the brain, it's, it doesn't have circuits that are sensible, that are nice components. And again, as a neuroscientist, I'm sure you know, I mean, people talk about the function of the locus ceruleus or the function of serotonin or the function of the vagus nerve. Um, I've memorized all that stuff, but it turns out that a real evolutionary view recognizes that each of these things have many different functions and they're overlapping with each other. And it's, it's not just complicated, it's a different kind of complexity than the complexity of machines. And this brings us, I mean, one of my most recent papers is about Alzheimer's disease actually, and asking, so why are we also vulnerable to Alzheimer's disease? One answer, actually, I should go through the reasons why people are vulnerable to disease in general. Let's, let's, that, let's, yeah, let's start that. there, that'd be great. And the first obvious one is, hey, mutations do happen. You know, the, the codex, the genome can't be kept pure and it's constantly deteriorating and there's genetic drift. Those are all very real things. Furthermore, natural selection doesn't always find the best possible available solution. So those are, those are big things. Uh, but then another big one is that our bodies are in environments very different from the environments that we evolved in. And this is why when we go to the grocery store, we're liable to buy pizza and ice cream instead of vegetables and, and high fiber foods. Um, and as a result, there are huge epidemics of obesity and, and other diseases that result from eating foods. To say nothing of, we all tell ourselves we should exercise a couple of hours every day. Yeah. Not many of us do it. And that's because we have even, we've been evolved to conserve calories you know, not, not to uh, spend extra calories doing effortful kinds of things. Then there are specific diseases. I just heard a talk yesterday from the AAAS, a wonderful um, discussion of the best scientists in the world talking about autoimmune diseases. And they had the most amazing, wonderful science about specific genetic abnormalities that explained a disease in 300 people worldwide, that kind of thing. Um, the mechanisms are being figured out for a lot of these diseases, but they didn't mention anything about the fact that many of these autoimmune diseases like type one diabetes, and especially certain bowel inflammatory bowel disease and asthma, I mean, they're four to 10 times more common than they were just 40 or 50 years ago. Why is that? So we really must be asking this new question, not just how things work. We need to be asking questions about why the body is not better. And one big reason is that 
we're not living in the same environment we used to live in. Yet another explanation is that the whole system was not shaped to make us healthy. That's so disturbing, I think. The whole system was shaped to maximize gene transmission. And if you're a psychiatrist, very quickly you realize the proportion of problems that come from sex. And guess what? All those sexual impulses are swirling and all kinds, those aren't for us. Uh, those are to try to get us to do things that will transmit our genes. And it's no wonder that they cause so many problems. So those are a quick few summaries. That the area I'm interested in most now is what I call intrinsically vulnerable systems. And those are systems where it doesn't matter how long selection has to operate on the system. Even if there were no mutations wrecking anything, it would still be vulnerable because there's a trade-off that makes things just, you know, how strong do you want your bones? You want your leg bones so strong that they're not gonna break. But there comes a point where making them that thick and that heavy doesn't pay off. And as a result, natural selection makes leg bones as thick as they need to be to not break, except for one in 10,000 times. And really everything in the body is like that. Um, everything is shaped by natural selection to the point where the costs are the same as the benefits. And, and this means that all kinds of things in the body uh, were intrinsically vulnerable to things. And especially again, back to neuroscience again, in why is it that Parkinson's disease, why is it that those neurons, the dopaminergic neurons in the basal ganglia are the ones that go bad in Parkinson's disease? Why not the GABAergic neurons that are adjacent? Well, it probably has to do with the very nature of how dopamine is made and stored because it's basically, it's, it's an oxidative process uh, that is responsible. And this means that not only is that a dangerous substance in the first place, but because the basal ganglia has to constantly act to stabilize your, I mean, what I'm doing right now, can you see my hand holding very still? Yes. It's a miracle. That's a product of opposing impulses, contraction of you. It's just spectacular the basal ganglia can keep that hand still. And that's because the neurons in the basal ganglia are working as hard as they possibly can on both sides to keep it in exact balance. And that means the mitochondria are working very hard and that means it's generating reactive oxygen species. And that means that we all, not just some people, we all are vulnerable to losing our dopaminergic neurons in the, in the basal ganglia because of these intrinsic vulnerabilities. So that's just a, a summary of some of the good reasons why bodies are vulnerable and why vines are vulnerable, um, even aside from mutations. Even if natural selection had all the time in the world and mutations didn't happen, we would still be vulnerable to some diseases. So um, this brings me to changing the environment. Yeah. Right, so you can protect yourself somewhat from even if you have some of these mutations, you can still protect yourself somewhat, can't you? By, by certain things, whether it's what you eat, whether you exercise, the environments you live in, um, expo exposure to adverse childhood experiences, um, that kind of thing. Right, and, and some monkey work uh, done by Steve Sumi um, at the National Institutes of Mental Health has shown that it might be those monkeys who are the um, most reactive in bad circumstances, they get in terrible trouble. But in good circumstances, they often do better than other monkeys. So just as you say, it depends a lot on the environment a person's exposed to. 
So um, in, let's talk a little bit about your book for the audience, Good Reasons Why We Have Bad Feelings. I think that's a really important um, conversation. It's really my attempt to get psychiatrists and everyone else trying to put evolution as the foundation for psychiatry. Now that sounds pretty academic, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, but actually I wrote, I wrote the book. So I mean, when George Williams and I wrote Why We Get Sick, uh, it was a trade press, not an academic press. And that was a very wise decision because if it was an expensive academic book, nobody would have read it. Uh, but we made it very interesting for the general public. And I've tried to do the same with this book writing about some case histories, all very carefully disguised so that no one is possibly embarrassed. Um, and trying to, it, it's not a self-help book. I mean, all the self-help books that could be written have already been written, you know? And they don't do all that much good. Um, my goal is to try to provide a proper scientific foundation that's been lacking. And now we go back to the beginning of my career in psychiatry in the new diagnostic and statistical manual, you know, that's talked about a lot. And it's just coming out when I started my career. And the people who wrote it and everyone else, we thought these are temporary categories defining mental disorders. And we're going to find the brain causes. We're going to find the specific neurons and the specific genes and the specific brain areas. And we're going to figure out what causes these disorders. And here we are 40 years later. Um, and we haven't found these specific genes or the specific brain regions or the specific brain abnormalities that actually explain these diseases. It's been such a terrible disappointment. This does not mean that neuroscience is useless, does not mean we should stop doing it, but it does mean that we can take a different perspective as we try to look for these things. Instead of assuming that every different disease has a specific cause that we're going to find, we have to start thinking differently. Here's one something. When I started my residency, the very first thing I was taught was bipolar disease and schizophrenia are different illnesses. And your job as a young doctor is to figure out which of these, these the, the, your next psychotic patient has. And I tried very hard to do that. I did that for many years. You know, the genetic data has now come in just in the last five years that the genes that cause schizophrenia, a lot of them also cause bipolar disease. And the genes that cause bipolar disease, a lot of them also increase your risk of schizophrenia. So this whole idea that we were going to find distinctive diseases with specific causes, it turns out not to be right. And we need to figure out what to do next. And I think evolution helps us figure that out. So fascinating. So I'd, I'd like to just dig down on one of these is fear and what you've learned about that. And it's right. So as you, as you mentioned in that lovely introduction, Selena, I, I spent most of my career treating patients with anxiety disorders. And, and I began with psychoanalytic kinds of treatment. And I continued to uh, try to figure out ways of using cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, medications turned out to be very useful as well. And it was a marvelous, useful career because so many people have problems that can be helped dramatically uh, with anxiety. But it wasn't until I'd been doing it for about 10 years that I finally recognized that I really should be asking, why does anxiety exist at all? And why are people so sensitive? And one of the things that came up uh, was recognizing something called the smoke detector principle. Uh, I kept asking myself, why didn't natural selection do a better job of give, giving us anxiety only when we need it? And took many years of thinking about it, but I finally figured out that signal detection theory offers the answer. 
And if you have a smoke detector in your house, how sensitive do you want it to be? Do you want it to go off only when the smoke detector is burning and the whole room is full of smoke? No, you want it to go off when there's any hint of a fire. And this means it's going to go off quite often when you burn your toast. So false alarms are necessary and normal and essential to a normal functioning system. And this turns out to be the reason why a lot of us have too much anxiety. Anxiety is cheap compared with not having enough anxiety in the face of serious danger. This turned out to be very useful to my patients. And previously I explained to them, you know, you have a mental disorder, it's a brain disorder, but no, doesn't mean your brain is broken. We're gonna fix it. And, and they, they didn't get it, you know? But once I started saying, anxiety is a useful response to protect you from danger. And just like your smoke detector in your house, it goes off a whole lot of times normally when it's useless. And a lot of patients said, oh, that makes sense. And it was just enormously helpful. And instead of th thinking of themselves as defective persons, you know, they started thinking of themselves who you know, had disadvantages, but also advantages from having more anxiety than other people. Amazing, isn't it? Uh, and that's exactly why I switched into neuroplasticity and this understanding away from just trying to map down to the individual neuron. That's exactly where the switch took place for me as well around 2008, 2009, um, after, after studying and developing medicines for 20 years at that point. <laughs> um, so I switched and that's why I'm interviewing people like yourself and others around the concepts of this idea of neuroplasticity, the brain can be changed with practice and effort that even though we may still have all these mutations and and things from natural selection we have the ability to change the brain that's the beauty of the brain psychotherapy changes the brain i mean that's a fundamental principle a lot of people don't quite grasp yes and it takes effort and practice though doesn't it it's not enough just to have it a does take effort and i spent many years helping people to understand cognitively the origins of their anxiety and early memories and that kind of thing. It was very interesting, but it didn't help them. Yes. On that subject again, where you, you were saying how interesting it was that um, patients, once you start to talk to them about uh, their brain in terms of the alarm systems going off, and sometimes they're going off just from an evolutionary perspective. Can we talk about that? That is so fascinating. And I know people would be really interested in your um, understanding as a clinician in these spaces. Right, for the smoke detector principle, but I'm going to go through that again for a second because I'm not sure uh, if, if that got through. Um, I was just appalled by how many people had anxiety. It were way, way more than we could possibly treat. And I asked myself, so who designed this thing? Because of course, it wasn't just you know a few patients. We're all plagued by anxiety. In fact, here's a fact for you. There's a new app uh, for phones called Calm. I know that one. Um, I really think I should not be writing books and doing basic science. I should be you know, supporting apps because that app is now worth $1 billion. I've, I heard that people, recently, yes. People are desperate to find some way of being less anxious. And I don't have a magic cure. Um, everybody else seems to have a magic cure. Um, but what I do have is an explanation for why anxiety exists and why so many of us feel so much more anxiety than seems to be useful. And again, a part of the explanation is the smoke detector principle. Anxiety is cheap and not having enough anxiety when you're in a life-threatening situation is desperately, I mean, that's terrible. And so false alarms are really normal. 
But the other insight I finally came to, I was also very interested all through about why it is that humans are so nice. Um, yeah, some humans are mean, but basically we, most of us feel guilt. We care a lot about what other people think about us. We try to do the right thing. And this is a deep evolutionary mystery. Uh, people used to think it was you know, for the good of the group. That doesn't work evolutionarily. Um, it probably has a lot to do with culture because once you get culture going, it becomes a strong selection force. Uh, but finally, I'm working on work done by Mary Jane West Eberhard on something called social selection. I realized that you know, people are competing to be preferred as partners. Absolutely. Not just as mates, not just as mates, but as work partners and, and friends and group partners. When we try to hire somebody for our department or a corporation, you know, we want somebody who's honest and nice and hardworking and loyal. You know, it, it, and the people who act that way get big advantages compared to the people who say I'm selfish, you know, and, and that, that just doesn't go anyplace. So this has been going on for you know, hundreds of thousands of years. And I think it's a very strong selection force that makes us, you know, very nice and plagued by guilt and especially plagued by social anxiety. I mean, most of us try to plan ahead of time what we're going to say, even with, even to the grocery store clerk. You know, we're a little bit nervous about every time we open our mouth, are we going to blow it? Um, and some of my patients are so frightened of that, they don't leave their houses. Or they get a job as a night watchman where they never have to talk to anybody. Right. It's really desperately a severe disorder, bad social anxiety disorders. But I think there's a good reason why we all have way more social anxiety than we think is useful. And that's because what people think about us is very, very important evolutionarily. So that, you know, and this doesn't cure people again instantly, but telling people who are socially anxious, you know what? It's better to be socially anxious than not to be socially anxious enough. Because those people are really a pain in the neck. You know, right. They're just not nice people. So, this gets me to an interesting conversation, which wasn't one of the questions, but, you know, societies that are living free, as free as possible and long from free of chronic diseases are the people that get along with each other incredibly well, like the Okinawa people, this is the Blue Zones work, and the people in Loma Linda is another example of another Blue Zone that they talk about. So these people seem to be very socially connected and feel like they have each other's back. Whereas, I mean, you've grown, you're American and you grow in American society and it's much more individualistic. So do you think the social anxiety disorders are much greater as we've become more individualistic? In You know, I, I don't think it's that simple because once you're in a very individualistic society, um, having too much social anxiety is a great inhibition to climbing the status hierarchy and, and all kinds of things. And I've had many patients come to me, especially in the 1990s or late eighties, they would say, um, I'm too inhibited, I'm not aggressive enough. Can you help me to become you know, more aggressive and assertive? And at first I said, sure, um, because that was when I'm okay, you're okay was a big deal and everybody was trying to become more assertive. But as I've gotten older and watched people and learned more, I realized that, you know, yeah, it might get you more accomplishments, um, but there's also a price, price to be paid um, if you become an aggressive person striving for status. In fact, I think there's another deep contradiction here. 
that you know the social resources we get one big social resource we strive for is status and being a big shot and having people look up to us and having social power but the other social resource we strive for is friends and being a member of a group and having other people appreciate us and those two often conflict with each other because often within your group you know you're competing with other people who are kind of your friends and this leads to a lot of the complexities of social life and why we lie awake at night thinking about things um, and a lot of the things people talk about in therapy because social life is actually very complicated. Right. So in, in your experience um, in the field with people as well as in your own lab, it sounds to me like this is one of the biggest issues around anxiety. It is. It is. And, you know, we can treat social anxiety very effectively. But first you have, I mean, for all anxiety, the central principle is that doing what you fear will make you fear it less. And you can't just run into a grocery store with a panic attack and then run back out again. You have to go into the grocery store, have your panic attack and stay there until it gets better. And this has become that because natural selection has shaped a mechanism that adjusts the responsiveness of that system to the dangers of the circumstance. And this is another reason why anxiety disorders are common. It's because a positive feedback process gets set off often where people are afraid of their symptoms of fear. So their heart starts pounding and think, oh my God, I'm having a heart attack. And that fear causes more adrenaline, causes more high pounding heart rate and, and all the rest. And worse, people run out of the grocery store when they have a panic attack and their inner mind says, says to them, whoa, you just escaped big danger. Good thing you got out of there. Um, so it's, it's a very hard thing to do as a therapist to help people recognize that you know, what they need to do is go into that situation that's causing such unbearable fear and just stay there, which is completely unnatural. But it's tapping into a basic evolved mechanism that, that resets the anxiety threshold response depending on how dangerous the environment is. But again, some poor people who have panic attacks several times a day, I mean, the panic attacks themselves make the environment seem dangerous. And so again, this positive feedback process gets set off. Here's another way that evolutionary thinking has been very useful to me. Um, antidepressants, as you may or may not know, are very effective in stopping panic attacks. It takes a few weeks often, but it pretty reliably will stop the panic attacks. And my patients would always ask me, is this just covering over my symptoms? And they would be very reluctant to take a drug that was covering over symptoms. And I used to say, no, 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 don't worry about it, it'll be okay. Finally, I was able to explain to them though, with an evolutionary understanding, I was able to say, well, actually there's a mechanism in your brain that will downregulate the sensitivity of the anxiety system once you stop having attacks for a few months. And so it's not as if you're just covering things over, you're actually normalizing your experience of the world to make it more realistic. And that was so helpful for patients to have an accurate view of how these drugs are working. And um, if with practice, like if like in your experience now, and do you think we could train this mechanism by having a, like do you understand it evolutionarily? You're trying to start a curriculum around this in medicine. So don't you think there's a way that we can teach this so that we can teach people this idea so that we don't keep doing the same thing forever in terms of evolution. Like we do have a human understanding of this in a way. 
that, that's a lot of the reason why I wrote the book for the general public, as well as for, for clinicians and researchers, um, is because I've been so thrilled to get notes from people saying, oh, Dr. Nessie, I read your book, and it, it just changed my view of what my problems are in an enormously helpful way. I mean, it's, again, not a self-help book. It's a science book, but it's a science that's been missing uh, from understanding these disorders. Exactly. And I think that's what this podcast is about, too. And, and this, I, this concepts, too, of moving away from always about the bad, about illness and not about the good, which is our resilience and our evolutionary strength to get to where we are now. Um, can we focus, can we maybe switch topics a little bit to, towards that side of resilience, grit and, and our evolutionary strengths? Yes, kind of. But, you know, people um, like to talk about some people being strong and gritty and other people being weak and disordered. And I, I don't I just, like that. No, neither do I. You know, no. Um, and in fact, you know, my work is not really focused on why some people get ill and others don't. It's on this entirely different question about we, why we all share vulnerability. But we want to talk about mood for a second. Yes. Because I treated yes. depressive disorders for a decade or more before asking myself, hey, wait a second. Why does low mood exist at all? why don't we all just go about our lives with the same happy mood all the time? It would be better for us. And it took a lot of work with behavioral ecologists and others to realize that there are times in life when being enthusiastic and putting in a lot of energy and taking risks is good. But there are also times in life when that would not only just waste energy, but expose you to terrible risks. And there's times socially when you should be striving and, and trying to do things, but there are other times when the harder you try to accomplish things and impress people, the worse it is. And, and so there's a system built in that adjusts our motivation to guide us in putting energy towards those things that might be hopeful and away from those things where we're just wasting effort. And this leads to the single most useful question. Uh, my, my residents who I teach in psychiatry say that the most useful thing I've ever, ta ever taught them is to ask this question about someone who's depressed. The question is, is there something that seems so desperately important to you that you need to just keep on trying to accomplish it and do it, even though you're pretty sure you'll never succeed? And that question often taps into exactly the nubbin of that person's problem. Um, and it's some people, you know, they're trying to get into a fancy graduate school. More often it's somebody trying to stop their kid from drinking or trying to get their spouse to want to have sex, or trying to get rid of their cancer. I mean, all kinds of things come out once you start asking people, what's the biggest thing you're trying to do in life that is not going very well, but you can't give up? So um, do you want to give some really uh, examples, like for people that you've, like, or people that you've... Yeah, a, a few. You know, again, I'll, I'll emphasize that all examples are, are thoroughly disguised because I think it's terrible to discuss patients in of any course, public yeah. setting um, in any realistic way. But, but I, I recall one uh, woman came to us and, and she you know, was very depressed and we couldn't figure out why. Um, she, she said she had a good job, she had good friends, she had a good church, she'd lost her husband some time ago. But, um, and, and finally I asked her, you know, is there something you're trying to do that just doesn't work and you can't give up? She started crying. And I said, well, what's that all about? And she says, it's about my daughter. And I said, well, I thought you told me she was okay. So she said, well, she's kind of okay, but 
when she was a, a little baby, uh, I was living with a heroin addict and I vowed with her that she would never get in that situation of living with a drug, drug dealer. And the minute she graduated from high school, she moved in with a dealer and got addicted. And I've been trying ever since to get her out of there and to get her clean again. And now she won't even answer my phone calls. And this is my only goal in life. Is She's my only daughter. It's sad just to hear about it, isn't it? You know what? You can't give up on something like that. Um, but you can talk with patients in that kind of a terrible situation and say, gosh, it's perfectly understandable why you're feeling these terrible feelings. Um, but they're not actually helping you or your daughter. But there are other things you could do that would be helping more. And, and that... So it, again, it's not a quick fix. It's not a think differently about things. It's, it's a let's you know, deal with the human condition of your individual life and try to see if there's a way that we can figure out a way for you to put your effort into things that are more productive and useful and interesting and positive. So this, this kind of brings us to the question of guilt and morality, doesn't it? It does again, yeah. We talked before a bit about social selection and how the capacities for being good um, and being sensitive to other people are a product of natural selection. Again, it's not just social selection. There's cultural factors and other kind of things that are also important here. But wouldn't it be nice if we didn't worry about our self-esteem so much, you know? You know if, if we didn't have to be striving for good, good vibes from people all the time? Except we do. And, and it's probably a, a good thing that we do on the average in the long run. Um, because that makes us better people with more friends. We mentioned about morality. Do you want to talk a little bit about that subject now and what and why that's in your bio? You know, there's been a huge trauma, I think, to the human consciousness, almost as big as Copernicus, you know? We used to think we're at the center of the universe. No, sorry about that. Um, then Freud pointed out that we actually don't always control our behaviors. You know, there's an unconscious going on in there. Um, but I think the evolutionary challenge to us is recognizing that natural selection, that, that genes become more frequent, become more frequent, you know, and that, you know, individuals who do things that result in them having more children than others pass on more of their genes. And people who say, you know, I'm just not interested in sex, they don't pass on their genes compared with other people. And so the big mystery has been how morality can be possible. And some people, including my dear friend and co-author George Williams, conclude that morality is just an illusion. And I think this is a terribly corrosive social idea, which is why I spent so many years trying to understand the origins of morality. Um, I don't think it's an illusion at all. And I think it's genuine morality that most of us have. Um, it's not just trying to cleverly figure out how we can manipulate people. You know, I, I think most of us are actually sincerely trying to do the right thing most of the time. But the problem is, of course, that other people are liable to take advantage of that. So does this and, get us to the war situation that we're in right now? Yeah. And, and, you know, the idea of neurosis, I think, is quite a deep, profound idea. Some people are very, very sensitive. They tend to have more anxiety and depression than other people and be very concerned about doing the right thing and pleasing other people. And sometimes they get into situations where the harder they try to please somebody, the more that person exploits them. And sociopaths gravitate uh, to people who are neurotic and exploit them. And you see this in marriages quite often that it's very hard to fix a situation like that. Um, but understanding how these relationships work, I'm giving a talk 
in just a couple of weeks for the World Psychiatric Association. And it's called Why Relationships Exist as a Foundation for Understanding How to Do Better Psychotherapy. I've got a lot of thinking to do before I give that talk. What's your, can you give us a little bit of a hint? Um, you know, I've got to think about it more before I give the talk, but the gist of it is that there are different kinds of relationships. The, the two fundamental kinds are what we call instrumental relationships, which are basically just trading favors. Um, you, you have a very good relationship with your baker and your car mechanic, I hope, um, and they're honest and they treat you well and they don't charge you too much. And, you know, um, but it's a very different relationship you have with your sister and your, and your kids and, and, and your partners. And, and those other relationships are based much more on commitment um, and their communal relationships where you don't expect um, things to be paid back. And in fact, if you invite your friends, if your friends invite you to dinner and you have a very lovely dinner at their house um, and during the dinner you say, oh, this is a very, very nice dinner. It looks to me like you spent about $30 for each person. Why don't you come over to my house next week and we'll do the same for you. What? <laughs> this is just so outrageous. Um, because you want those relationships not to be relationships based on trading favors. You want them to be based on caring. And it doesn't always work out that way. Again, social life is tricky because, you know, all these relationship kinds blend into each other. Um, but it's, anyway, the, the fundamental problem in establishing a psychotherapeutic relationship, I think, is, is trying to find the right distance. Because the person's paying you, right? On the other hand, you damn well better be very sensitive and listening carefully and creating a relationship with the person or the psychotherapy to work well. Um, but that, that's for another, another time. Well, this, Let me think more this, about that. Yeah, so you must be familiar with the Harvard Grant study then. Oh, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, this is all about, and they, the people that ran this study since the 80s, got, I mean, since the 30s, for 80 years at least, got really disappointed with the results because the people living the longest and happiest, and this was a study in men, were people that had the best social relationships. And they were hoping to find something about the food or the environment or exercise or you know, factors that in, they, they were shocked because it was a men's yeah. study as well. So this is exactly what you're talking about, to be honest. But it's not so easy to provide people with a strong social network. It's something that... Different people have different motives and different ways of doing it. And people influencing each other in profoundly different ways. And some people try to please other people. Other people make jokes all the time. Other people threaten other people. Other people guilt trip other people. And, and you know, I think the people who do best are those who use all kinds of different strategies, depending on the circumstance, preferably without thinking about them too much. Because thinking about these things just wrecks everything. You know, it's, I think just behaving in a natural, normal way is best if it works for you. So this is, I, I think this conversation is fascinating because it takes you straight to the Blue Zones work. Okay. So in if you've read Dan Butner's book and 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 then there's films. I, I, I have not, I have not, so you'll have to tell me. Oh, so it's the Okinawa people in Japan. They live for a really long time free of chronic disease and they talk about the food and the environment, but, but really the the nub of it, and also Ikaria in Greece and also Loma Linda group. Um, there's five blue zones, and he went and researched all of them to show why they're living really long, healthy, happy lives, mostly free from chronic disease. And it talks a lot about 
the social situation in these groups where they all feel supported and there's not a lot of gossip or, you know, people feel really safe and really supported in those communities and they and they film all of these communities. So it's all about the social connection really and it goes along with the Harvard Grant Study and it goes along with what you're talking about, how we're tuned for uh, optimising our genes for social connection. And this That's right. And I feel like in our societies now with the social media and all of our platforms, even though we've got more ways to connect, we're getting more disconnected. And this may be, and they talk a lot about this, how this can impact our mental health. Yes. So there's a lot of talk these days about a mental health epidemic, either because of COVID or because of cell phone use or, or something. And, and I keep following that data. And the answer is maybe. But it's, it's clear to me that every generation for a thousand years has thought that now things are much worse than they were in the old days. I mean, if you read the Romans, uh, the Romans went on about how these new young people are just living wild lives. You know, um, <laughs> I think that that's a, there was even a very famous study uh, where um, epidemiologists looked at rates of depression and they found that older people reported a lot less depression than younger people. And they, they thought that, oh, my gosh, depression is rising so fast, we'll never be able to control it. But what they didn't take into account is that older people forgot that they ever had a period of depression uh, back when they were 20 or 30. Um, so yeah. these things. You know. I, I agree with you. I've been watching a, this series called Outlander, which is uh, someone from 1900s gets transported back 200 years into Scotland in the Highlands. And it was really brutal. <laughs> Indeed. Maybe I should try that. So we should wrap up in a few minutes, but we haven't talked about the most serious disorders. And maybe it would be good to talk a bit that, about schizophrenia. Yes, that would, be, that would be really good um, if you could now tell us why you think that's that exists. You know, it, it remains a mystery. That's the place to start. Um, people have long thought that we, and again, when I started my career, we were quite certain we would find specific genes and specific brain abnormalities for these disorders. And first it became pretty clear that despite the decade of the brain and all that, we did not find specific brain lesions. Again, there are brain differences in people who have depression or schizophrenia or OCD, but not enough that you can diagnose somebody with any kind of a brain test and not enough that you can find a specific cause and now, just in the past five years, the data from whole genome sequencing studies has started coming in. And it's been absolutely remarkable and terribly disappointing in a way. And whether or not you get schizophrenia depends overwhelmingly on what genes you have. Likewise for bipolar disorder, likewise for autism, and considerably also for obsessive compulsive disorder. So why on, I mean, people with autism have about half as many children as other people do. Likewise, men with schizophrenia have half as many children. Women have 20% fewer children. So you would think that natural selection would just eliminate those genes very quickly. And back in the year 2000, when we were just starting to sequence genomes, most of us thought we would find the bad genes and it would be a revolution. And what we've discovered is that there are no common genes that increase your risk very much at all. Most of the ones that we found increase your risk less than 1%, almost nothing. And, and now what we're doing is taking and throwing together every bit of genomic information we have 
to try to understand who has a disorder and who doesn't. And often when we take that all together, uh, we find that we still can explain 20% or 30% of the variation. But this is so profound that why is it that there would be thousands of genes of tiny effect that make us vulnerable to these disorders? Um, one possibility is that they're very, very rare genes and they're different ones that have big effects. That's probably going to explain about 20% of autism and 10 to 20% of schizophrenia. But a different view that I'm trying to understand is that you know, there might be intrinsically vulnerable systems. That is systems that you know, are kind of on the edge of failure all the time for all of us. It's like a race car. You know, if you want to build a race car that's really, really fast and goes around the track and beats the other cars, um, you've got to make it very, very light. And if you make it very, very light, it's liable to fall apart, which is why most race cars don't finish the race. Um, and you know, just in the last couple of hundred thousand years for our species, I think there's been very strong selection for special cognitive abilities and emotional abilities and social abilities. We call it the social cultural niche. And we're living in a, you know, what determines your success nowadays, not just nowadays, but for the past few thousand years, um, is not you know, how strong you are or how much you can, it's partly how much you can re resist infectious disease, but, but a lot of it is your extraordinary cognitive and social abilities. And, and let's go back now to a different thing. Let's talk about when humans ancestors first stood upright. You know, a couple million years ago, can you imagine how awful it would have been to be one of those people? I mean, we all have back pain now, right? They all had back pain that back then. A lot of us have varicose veins. It must have been much worse back then. And hemorrhoids and hernias and, you know, all of the ankle pain and knee pain. I mean, it must have been just terrible. Natural selection has gradually been making it better. So not all of us have pain all the time from these things. It's, it's, it's marvelous. Um, but that's what I call a wrenching transition. And genetically, uh, this is characterized by, by what I call you know, massive pleiotropy. Pleiotropy just means that one gene does a lot of different things. If you imagine how selection actually works, and you're trying to change the brain so it works better in this social cultural niche, and you get a new mutation, it gives you a net advantage. It, it increases your number of children by 1% compared with other people. That's pretty big, actually. That, that, that gene is probably, but not certainly, going to become more and more common. But here's the, here's the kicker. That gene also does 20 other things. And some of those 20 other things are going to wreck other things. And so you know, it's not like a design machine. It's, it's all these things interacting together. And when you fix one thing, it wrecks a couple of other things. Then natural selection has to go to fix those. And I think what you get is some systems that are you know, just intrinsically vulnerable to failure. So this brings so me now, you're gonna, now you're going to ask me what I really mean by that. And <laughs> I'm going to ask you for another year or two to think about it. And it actually needs research from people who understand how control systems work and how genes interact with each other and how different kinds of abilities 
uh, lead to different kinds of reproductive success. So the neuroimaging studies that image 16,000 people, like combined studies looking at schizophrenia, bipolar, anxiety, depression, addiction, did, did name like the, the prefrontal cortical areas, specific parts of them as being at least a common feature of being in decrement. Yes. In, across those disorders. So I think the prefrontal right. cortical regions are relatively new in evolutionary history that allow us to be more at this niche, so to speak. Right. And what's going on in those areas and how the neurons connect with each other and how different neurotransmitters interact. Um, it's, it's really dramatic. Yeah. And also adverse childhood experiences and trauma um, in, interacting in that region is the first part to be really impacted right. and I think that research intersecting adverse childhood experiences with cognitive parts of the brain does put us right. at more liability for having more anxiety, potentially schizophrenia, and those things right. as well. I think that's where the cognitive. You know, I, I think it's it's tempting though to to imagine that you know certain kids are terribly getting abused now, and it's a product of modern society. I mean, if you ask me what we can do to improve mental health for the world. Take better care of kids. Absolutely. And try, to, and, and try to prevent child abuse. One, two, I mean, that's what we need to do. But this idea that everything was rosy way back when, in many ways it was better. I mean, mothers were with their kids 24-7, and they were in communities where other people cared, and the kids could play with other kids. In general, that was the case anyway. Um, but it wasn't all rosy, because sometimes a mother would have a second baby within a year and not be able to nurse them both. You know, there's no bottles. You know, there had, hard decisions had to be made. Um, and mothers often were in, in a situation where the, her mate from the first you know, conception was gone. And some new man is willing to take care of her, but he's not nice towards the kid. I, mean, yes. I wish that, yes. you know, I wish life was nice. Yeah. Yeah. So and I think that's also part of the multi-generational inheritance too, right? In terms of how the brain remembers things like that micro RNA. That, that is such an interesting, I mean, in the work about transmission of stress sensitivity, Michael Meany's work and, and that of yeah. other people is so profound. Yeah. And the unanswered question about that um, is whether or not those are mechanisms shaped by natural selection or whether those are just side effects of other mechanisms. It's looking more now that, I mean, I'd, I'd be leaning now towards some of those mechanisms being shaped by selection to actually pass information on. Yes, faster. But it's very hard to tell if, if that's what they are or if, if the information is just kind of an accident getting passed on to the next generation. Yes, I think this is a great, this micro RNAs uh, and, and demonstrating this in humans is the next breakthrough that we're waiting for. I mean, it's been demonstrated across all species, but to see we haven't really demonstrated that yet in humans, right. but I think that's going to be, we'll, I, I think it's just a matter of time as we see. Isn't that exciting though, to be living yes. now when all of these things are coming out. And I mean, I, in the fact of all that I've been consuming every genetic study that comes out about mental disorders and seeing if there's a way to put it all together in an evolutionary context. Yeah. It's just so exciting to be living in these times. It is. And um, Dr. Nessie, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it, Jess. I'd be interested in any responses any of your listeners have or that you have later. Yeah, so um, we'll people should go to my, web, my website. You can just look me up on Google and it'll take you right to my website where there's um, most of my papers and, and a lot of other videos and other, other things that would be of interest.
So, and I'll put a link to all of that um, as well for people to be able to access. So I look forward to meeting you again. And um, I wish I could come to Australia again sometime. One of the most fun visits I ever had any place was to the Black Dog Institute. Oh, yes. Um, it, it was one, what a great place that, that was. Um, and then Paul Griffiths, you know, in Sydney. Yes. Runs a wonderful center. Uh, he's actually coming to our International Society for Evolution of Medicine and Public Health meeting in Lisbon, uh, which is going to be in July. And he has written brilliant things about emotions um, and mental disorders. And there are a few other people there as well who've done wonderful work. Australia is really a, a rich place. And, and, if I, and there was a, a get together online of everybody interested in evolution of medicine uh, a few weeks ago. And anybody who wants to get to become a part of that should send me a note. And I'd be glad to put you into the, into the link so you can participate. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for everything you're doing. Too. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the invitation.